Welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the November 2022 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm pleased to be joined by Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments, both in the United States and abroad, affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's episode, much like a good Thanksgiving dinner, contains a wide variety of offerings for all. However, before we dig in, we'd be remiss if we didn't take a moment to reflect on the news of this weekend, and I'd like to have a short moment of silence for those who have been injured or killed at Club Q in Colorado Springs. Thank you. Professor Leonard, it's an honor to have you with us today. I'm great, great to be here, and uh, we've got an incredible amount of stuff to talk about. It's true. The hour is going to simply fly by. So I know we have a pair of decisions to talk about in the Northern District of Texas. We're going back there once again. Let's kick it off there. Okay, this is the Amarillo Division of the Northern District of Texas, which it seems to me was clearly picked by the plaintiffs in these two cases who are attacking Biden administration policies, basically policies that try to protect transgender people uh, under under Title VII and under uh, the Affordable Care Act and under the Education Amendments Act and under various other statutes like the, the Fair Housing Act, for example. They picked this district because this is a branch courthouse of the Northern District of Texas, which is based in Dallas. And so Amarillo doesn't really have a full-time judge, but they have one judge in particular from the Northern District who sits there most of the time on assignment. And if you're going to attack policies protecting transgender people, you're going to want to be before a judge who has stated before he became a judge, adverse opinions, bad opinions about gender identity, gender dysphoria, the whole thing. When Matthew Kaczmarek was nominated by Donald Trump, LGBT groups worked very hard to try to block the nomination without success in the Senate. The Senate, Republicans controlled the Senate. Anyone who Trump nominated pretty much, uh, with very rare exceptions, got confirmed. And Kazmarek had a track record on this of being opposed to LGBT rights and in particular calling transgender status as a delusion. All right, so you would think he would be recused from any case involving transgender people, but unfortunately, the defendants in these two cases are federal agencies, and I don't think federal agencies normally move to recuse judges. At any rate, uh, we have two opinions from him on October 1st in the case of State of Texas against the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and on October 14th in the case of Nice versus Becerra. So I'll talk about those in chronological order. Uh, there are different stages, but uh, the uh, state of Texas case is further advanced. All right, the state of Texas has various operations and employees who are covered by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And uh, 
they object to the way the Biden administration has been interpreting the Bostock decision. And so a little review on the Bostock decision issued by the Supreme Court in 2020 during the Trump administration. Uh, it was a combination of three cases, the Zarda case from the Second Circuit, the Bostock case from the 11th Circuit, and the Amy Stevens case from the Sixth Circuit. Gerald Bostock and Donald Zarda, gay men who claimed that they were discharged from their employment because they were gay. Amy Stevens, a transgender woman who claimed she was dismissed from her employment because she's transgender, because she was transitioning. Uh, and the issue there really for the uh, employer was that, but she wanted to dress as a woman. She was a funeral director and was hired as a man and transitioned. So the dress code thing was a big issue in her case. At any rate, Zarda and Bostock lost their cases in the lower courts. Uh, in, in the Zarda case, the uh, federal district judge dismissed the case on Title VII. There was also uh, charges uh, under the New York State Human Rights Law, uh, which clearly applies to sexual orientation for about 20 years now. But Title VII, although the EEOC was taking the position already at the time Zarda filed that sexual orientation claims are covered under Title VII, the district court said, uh, we have no Supreme Court or Second Circuit precedent saying so. And in fact, we had Second Circuit precedent to the contrary. So the district court dismissed it. A uh, case was tried under the human rights law and Zarda lost before a jury, but there was an appeal to the Second Circuit on the dismissal of the Title VII. And the Second Circuit ended up reversing on bank. And, and so uh, that case went up to the Supreme Court on cert. Uh, Gerald Bostock was an employee of Clayton County, Georgia. He was dismissed. He claims he was dismissed when they found out that he was competing on a gay softball team. And so for the first time, they knew he was gay, or at least he was openly gay. And they fired him. They claimed that there were problems with his accounts, his uh, you know, reimbursements for expenses and things like that. Uh, he said that was pretextual. Uh, the 11th Circuit rejected his claim, uh, and uh, he petitioned the Supreme Court. Amy Stevens was fired by Harris Funeral Home, and uh, the Sixth Circuit ruled in her favor after the federal judge allowed the case to go to a jury uh, and ruled for her. So the funeral home was appealing. The Supreme Court combined the three because they all basically presented the question, how should Title VII's ban on sex discrimination or discrimination because of sex, to use the precise language, how should that be interpreted? And the Supreme Court ruled that for purposes of Title VII's ban on discrimination because of sex, an employer who fires somebody because they're gay or transgender has fired them because of their sex. That is, the court said it's impossible to even define the concept of sexual orientation or gender identity without reference to people's sex. And as I'm, I was fond of saying in, in my sexuality course over the years, isn't it all about sex? Isn't discrimination based on sexual orientation about sex? If, if What is it about if it's not about sex? And the same thing with gender identity, it's about sex. With what sex do you identify? With what sex uh, do you construct your identity and live your life, et cetera, et cetera? So uh, that was the decision of the court. Justice Gorsuch, writing for a six to three majority, said that it's impossible to discriminate on this basis 
without taking account of sex. And taking account of sex is what Title VII basically forbids. Now, of course, if an employer can come in and can prove that there was some other reason for the action they were taking that was not a pretext for discrimination under Title VII, the employer might win, but not necessarily. Uh, as long as it's shown that sex was taken into account, uh, there might at least be a declaratory judgment that the statute was violated or that there might be limitations on the remedy if there's a non-discriminatory reason that independently would justify a, a discharge. It's a little complication of Title VII law. But the reasoning that Justice Gorsuch used suggested most to most legal observers that this is a portable decision. That is, this is a decision that by its reasoning should logically apply to any ban on discrimination because of sex. Because it's impossible, according to Justice Gorsuch, to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or because of sexual orientation or uh, transgender status, is the way he phrased it, without taking account of sex. Well, what does that mean as a precedent? Is it portable? Does it apply to other statutes? And the statutes that are called into question here are not only Title VII, but also the Affordable Care Act in the state of Texas, the EEOC case. The case after it was filed was amended to add the Department of Health and Human Services as a co-defendant with the EEOC. Because uh, when, when Joe Biden came into the Oval Office on his first day, if the coming back from the celebrations and, and the inauguration, he came back and there was a stack of executive orders that had been already drafted by his staff in advance for him to sign. And right on the top of that stack was an executive order stating that the executive branch should follow the reasoning of the Bostock decision in interpreting statutes that ban discrimination because of sexual orientation, uh, rather because of sex, and uh, should follow the Bostock decision unless there was some good reason not to, unless you know that something about the statute, for example, that made it inappropriate to do so. But in any event, he sent out an order, an executive order. He told his agencies, look, you've got a certain number of days to think about this, review your statute, review your regulations, get back to me with progress reports, and ultimately put out a guidance, put out a regulation, put out guidelines, you know, put out a notification to people who are subject to your statute. Do what you have to do to let people know how you're going to interpret it and how you're going to enforce it. So the EEOC was pretty fast on the draw. Charlotte Burroughs, chair of the EEOC, uh, issued a technical assistance document on June 15th, 2021. That's just five months after the inauguration. Uh, saying that we're going to follow Bostock and in interpreting Title VII, and this is what we think it means. We think it means uh, that you have to use the correct pronouns for people. We think it means you have to give restroom access to people based on their gender identity. They went down a whole list, and uh, it wasn't too hard to come up with that because the Obama administration has sent a similar notification under Title VII, which was withdrawn by the Trump administration, uh, which issued regulation shortly after Bostock. The regulation had been pending. And even as the Bostock came out, they issued the regulation, basically ignoring Bostock and taking a position that the uh, sex discrimination provision in Title VII should be narrowly interpreted to mean biological sex.
but uh, that was under attack in several federal courts. And the Biden administration has since uh, proposed a substitute regulation, uh, which is pending. But in any event, uh, the state of Texas said, we shouldn't have to do all that. All that the Supreme Court said is you can't fire somebody solely because they are gay or transgender. That's all they held. They didn't help anything else. Anything else is misinterpreting the Bostock decision. And they're pinning their hopes primarily on uh, the way Justice Gorsuch continued in his opinion. After he stated his rationale, then he said, but we are only deciding this case under Title VII or these cases under Title VII and these cases were all discharge cases. Does that mean it doesn't apply to discrimination in hiring? Does that mean it doesn't apply to discrimination in compensation? Does that mean that an employer who provides health insurance benefits to its employees may continue to discriminate against transgender employees? And of course, the Biden executive order went out to all of the executive branch agencies, not just the EEOC. It went out to the Department of Health and Human Services and its Office of Civil Rights. And they uh, have administrative oversight of the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act, Section 1557, has an anti-discrimination provision, but it differs in a peculiar way from the typical anti-discrimination provision. Instead of listing the prohibited grounds of discrimination, it says that may not discriminate based on the following statutes. And they picked out a statute on race discrimination that is not Title VII, a different statute on, on uh, race discrimination. They picked out a statute on discrimination in education, Title IX of the Education Amendments Act, which bans discrimination on the basis of sex in educational programs that receive federal financial assistance. And Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act applies to anyone, any entity that receives federal money under the Affordable Care Act. That includes insurance companies, that includes uh, providers of health care, it includes HMOs, it includes employers who provide health insurance. All are covered in one way or another by the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act's ban on sex discrimination is based on Title IX. So we have to look at Title IX precedents to figure out what it means. And for that, we have to look at the Office of Civil Rights of the Education Department. And the Education Department has sent out its own notification uh, to uh, educational institutions that receive federal funding that it's going to follow Bostock. But the argument that is being made by the state of Texas here is that's illegitimate because the Supreme Court said, Gorsuch said in his opinion, we're only deciding this case or these three cases under Title VII. We're not addressing other issues that might be raised about including sexual orientation and gender identity under Title VII. We're not dealing with that. We're not dealing with restrooms or anything like that. We're not dealing with any other federal statutes. Now, in his dissenting opinion, Justice Alito said, well, this opinion, the way this opinion is written, it could affect over 100 provisions of federal law involving sex discrimination. So as far as his view was, the reasoning of the court would clearly apply or could theoretically apply to all these other statutes. And he said, and we 
have not been presented with any of the issues involved with those statutes. Each of those statutes involves a different kind of discrimination under different settings. We were deciding a Title VII case. But interestingly, uh, Justice Gorsuch's opinion does not sound Title VII specific, except for his statement that it is. That is, his reasoning about how to interpret discrimination because of sex is a sort of logical textualist decision. Although it was criticized in a dissenting opinion by uh, Justice Kavanaugh as being a, an unduly literalistic version of textualism. <laughs> that is, it is a contextual. It ignored what people in 1964 could have thought they were doing by including sex as a prohibited basis of discrimination under Title VII. And I think it's Alito who states, and in 1964, who had heard about gender dysphoria? The term wasn't even in use yet. And gender identity? Well, gender identity, the, the, the point at which you start to get this appearing in federal law is the Violence Against Women Act. And in uh, the 1990s, the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act has a provision saying gender identity disorders should not be considered disabilities. And that's another point of litigation that's going on now, whether gender dysphoria is covered as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Federal Rehabilitation Act. Other litigation that we've talked about in the past and we'll talk about in the future. But anyway, Judge Kazmarek looks at all this stuff. And given his background and given the fact that the focus really of the Texas BEOC case is on the gender identity aspect. He says he thinks that the Biden administration has misinterpreted Bostock, that Bostock doesn't necessarily apply to other statutes, uh, although that's not the question for this case uh, until they amended this case to add uh, Department of Health and Human Services. But he basically says, that the Supreme Court said, Gorsuch said, we're just deciding this narrow question. Does it violate Title VII to discharge somebody because they're gay or transgender? That's all we're deciding. And so he says, to the extent that EEOC went beyond that, they're misinterpreting the statute, uh, rather than misinterpreting the case and therefore misinterpreting the statute <laughs> because the Supreme Court has not interpreted it that way. And uh, he's sitting in a, in a courtroom in Amarillo, Texas, in the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit certainly hasn't done that. The Fifth Circuit, in fact, had rejected uh, the idea that sexual orientation claims are covered under uh, Title VII. Although that, of course, is reversed by, uh, by the Bostock decision. But what does Bostock mean as a precedent? Well, what any Supreme Court case means as a precedent depends on how the lower courts treat it until it comes, the question comes up to the Supreme Court again, and it's asked to clarify something. And the Supreme Court, it's, it's amazing. You know, I follow uh, on Monday mornings when they release the order list of uh, the cert grants and denials from the fr Friday conferences that they hold. They haven't hardly granted cert in almost anything for the past few months. I look today, we're, we're recording this on November 21st. They issued an order list this morning. They didn't grant cert on any cases. They denied cert on dozens and dozens and dozens of cases, including a case right up front at the top of the cert list, asking them to clarify a very significant question as to which the lower courts are divided about private rights of action under Title IX, the Education Amendments Act. And 
it seems that uh, there are some questions that were posed uh, by some parties about uh, under what circumstances do you have a private right of action and said that the courts are a bit divided about it and will the supreme court step in and clarify and without any explanation they said no for some reason this court is not really doing much to expand its docket to cover the issues that the lower courts are divided about but at any rate so cosmaric says here first of all first of all i think the chair of the eeoc could not issue this directive on june 15th 2021 without getting a vote of the commission so that's a change in policy and they can't do that under the administrative procedure act without a vote of the commission and without publishing a proposed new regulation since the trump administration had issued a regulation to the contrary they can't do this without proposing a new regulation to repeal and replace the old one. And they have to publish it you know, in the federal record. They have to open it to public comment. They have to uh, then add, publish a final regulation accompanied by an explanation of how they dealt with the public comments. And this whole process can take months or even years uh, to adopt a new regulation or replace an old regulation. And uh, that's reflected in the fact that the Biden administration finally published a proposed new regulation this past summer, a year later, and it's out for comment. So it hasn't even been adopted yet. So he says, uh, for one thing, I can issue a declaratory judgment that this, uh, this guidance document that was issued is uh, invalid. It was not validly issued under the Administrative Procedure Act. And I think one of the reasons why Chair Burroughs issued this unilaterally without calling for a vote is the way the EEOC is set up. The commissioners have five-year terms. One comes up every year. A new president can start appointing people. A new president can designate an existing member to be the new chair in place of whoever was the chair under the previous administration. So Ms. Burroughs was designated as the new chair, but a majority of the commissioners were still Trump appointees at that point. So are you going to submit this to a commission with the majority of Trump appointees? And, and she said at the time that she was interpreting this uh, based on established legal positions on LGBTQ plus related matters as voted by the commission. And by that, she's referring to cases that were decided during the Obama administration. Uh, cases extending Title VII to gender identity claims and sexual orientation claims, the last of which sexual orientation claims took place in 2015. So those were votes of the commission, and they were votes that were never rescinded. Uh, even though the commission had a Trump-appointed majority, they never rescinded those prior rulings and said, we no longer have jurisdiction over these claims. So uh, Chair Burroughs took the position, I can issue this technical assistance document, as she called it, because uh, the Bostock decision, plus old votes of the commission that have never been overruled, uh, would support this, uh, but uh, Katzmarek wasn't buying it. So he had previously denied a motion to dismiss. They, you know, they amended to add HHS and Section 1557. So he's basically, in this opinion issued on October 1st, he issues a declaratory judgment but he denied the state's request to issue an injunction against enforcement. 
Uh, he explained in a footnote, he said, plaintiff did not brief factors relevant to the appropriateness of injunctive relief when they moved for summary judgment here. Someone in the Texas Attorney General's office is probably taking hell for failing to include that in their motion. So he said, I'm not gonna issue an injunction. He said, it's not the court's job to divine the applicable law for the parties, nor is it the court's job to manufacture every possible argument parties could conceivably make. So there's no injunction, but there's a declaratory judgment that basically says that uh, this uh, document put out by Chair Burroughs is invalid. No injunction, though. So does that mean the agency can continue to enforce inconsistently with its past decisions that haven't been overruled? I mean, there's a big question mark over this case. But then there's the other case, Nice versus Becerra. And I noticed uh, there was a lot of uh, adverse comment about this opinion on uh, Twitter after the opinion came out on October 14th. This is a case that was brought by three doctors who are upset about the uh, notification that was sent out by the Department of Health and Human Services that uh, under Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, they must cover gender affirming care for transgender people. And they said, well, what's the basis for that? And the basis for that was the Bostock decision. They said, but the Bostock decision wasn't interpreting Title IX or Section 1557, and 1557 is based on interpretation of Title IX. Now, what several lower courts have said, uh, and I think at least one federal court of appeals since then, is that the Bostock decision's reasoning is portable. It's portable to Title IX. It's portable to other sex discrimination laws. I think we've had at least one housing discrimination case uh, under the Fair Housing Act. There are other statutes that ban sex discrimination, the Fair Credit Act. This issue has continued to arise since the Bostock case, but we don't have a definitive ruling from the Supreme Court about it, whether it's uh, portable and we don't have uh, definitive Court of Appeals rulings yet in many circuits, just a handful. So here, Kazmarek, well, we know his views already from the October 1st decision. Uh, but in this, in this ruling on October 14th, what he was doing was certifying a class action. And these three doctors brought this case and they asked to be certified as a class. And it helps to know who the attorneys were who brought this case. We previously discussed this case, uh, Nice versus Becerra, in connection with the motion to dismiss that was filed by the Department of Health and Human Services on behalf of Xavier Becerra, secretary. And this law firm is not really a law firm as such. It is a quote-unquote public interest organization formed by former members of the Trump administration for the purpose of opposing Biden administration policies that reverse Trump administration policies. Uh, that's their target. They're, they call themselves the America First Legal Foundation, something like that. The board includes past White House staff, past Justice Department staff under the uh, Biden administration. And so they're on a mission here. And they're targeting this and they bring this on behalf of a few doctors and they file a motion to certify a class action of all doctors in the United States, all healthcare institutions in the United States, all insurance companies in the United States who are affected by Section 1557's anti-discrimination ban 
and Kaczmarek grants it. And uh, since it took us well into November to uh, get this issue of Law Notes done, I dropped a little note at the end of the article that was written by a contributing writer on this class action decision that uh, in the December issue of Law Notes, we will report about Judge Kaczmarek's later decision granting partial summary judgment to the plaintiffs in this case, which came out in mid-November and will be discussed in detail in the December issue of Law Notes and probably our podcast next month. But his reasoning is not much different from his reasoning in the Texas case. I mean, his, his point is that Bostock is a very narrow, focused precedent on employee discharges under Title VII and nothing else. Uh, and one of, the, one of the things that he seizes upon, just to give a little preview of next month, that Title IX does not say discrimination because of sex. It says discrimination on the basis of sex, which to me sounds like the same thing. And in fact, Justice Gorsuch used both phrases interchangeably in the Bostock decision. But Judge Kosmarek looks at that and he says, whoa, when Congress uses different language, we have to assume it doesn't mean the exact same thing or else they would have used the same language. But when Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, they weren't using any language. They were just referring to Title IX, which is a statute that dates back to the 1970s. <laughs> I mean, this is this is all amazing, but uh, as long as Kesmarek is sitting there in the Amarillo courthouse, you can bet where people are going to go to file claims to attack Biden administration policies that are pro-transgender. But that's what that stands at this point. And and I sh I should mention that uh, Judge Kesmarek did not issue an injunction in ruling on the summary judgment in Nice versus Becerra. Instead, he asked the parties. Uh, to supply him with proposed language for a remedy. So that's still pending. But by making it a class action, it would by necessity be a nationwide injunction for this issue. So that's where we are on that. The, the latest out of the Northern District of Texas. We have like at least three judges in the Northern District of Texas that are pretty notoriously anti-LGBTQ. And uh, one sits in the Fort Worth courthouse, uh, I think about half the year and Judge O'Connor, we've seen him before. And now we've got Cosmaric sitting in Amarillo. And because these satellite courthouses have part-time judges who are dispatched to go there from time to time, all you have to do is time it right to be sure you get that judge when you file your complaint. Wow, I mean, it sounds like our travels are going to be not only returning us to the Northern District of Texas next month, but certainly in the new year as well. It sounds like this is- Most likely, most likely. And certainly we'll be keeping our listeners updated on what's going on with 1557 as it moves through that regulatory process that you described. Right. So shifting gears a little bit, I know we're continuing on in pairs today, and there's been some interesting updates in terms of obtaining court order name changes. Right. And this is a, a, an important issue for transgender people in particular who want to have a name that is consistent with their gender identity and want to have a court order for the name change so they have an official document that they can take and use elsewhere to get changes like on their social security card or on their passport or on their driver's license. In many of these require that you have some documentation of a legal name change. In most states, you can just assume any name you want, but once you start asking for official documents and stuff, 
they frequently ask you to get a court order on a name change. And the rule on name changes generally in the United States is they're freely given unless there's a good reason not to. And we have two cases here where the question was, or should have been, was there a good reason not to? Right? One is out of the Nevada Supreme Court and the other is out of the Federal District Court in Nebraska. So we'll start with the Nevada case. Uh, this case involved a state prison inmate in Nevada and who wanted to change uh, consistent with her gender identity to Monica Denise Salazar and filed in the 8th Judicial District Family Court of Nevada seeking the name change, uh, submitted a petition. The uh, petition did not require publication. It seems normally when you petition for name change, you're required to publish it in a legal newspaper record uh, so that people who keep track of this, like creditors, can follow the debt to the new name and be aware of it or even raise objections if they want to raise objections. But it specifically excludes prisoners from having to publish a name change petition. Salazar submitted the petition with all the information requested on the form. There was a form to fill out for such a petition, including the statement that the change was not requested for fraudulent purposes. And the case was initially assigned to Judge William S. Potter. Potter's chambers asked for uh, some more information. Uh, two months after Salazar filed the petition, which had just been sitting there, she received a notice from the court stating that the court was denying the petition based on an internal department policy requiring approval from the Department of Corrections for in, inmate name change requests, and no such petition could be approved without a notice of non-opposition from the Department of Corrections. Now, this policy is not published as a statute or a regulation. It's evidently an informal rule or policy adopted by the Corrections Department or by the court. In any event, the Department of Corrections never filed a notice of non-opposition with the court. Meanwhile, the case was reassigned to a different judge, Denise Gentili, who dismissed the petition under an eighth district court practice rule to dismiss any petitions that had been pending too long without any action. The dismissal order provided no explanation as to what Salazar failed to do in order to get her petition adjudicated on the merits. So frustrated, she appealed to the Nevada Supreme Court. And a three-judge panel of the court reversed on October 20th, opinion by Chief Justice James William Hardesty in matter of Salazar. He pointed out under the name change statute, it's up to the discretion of the district court whether to grant the name change petition, but the statute requires that the court articulate substantial and principal reasons for denying a petition. Well, no substantial and principled reason for denying a petition was articulated by Judge Gentile. She just dismissed it stating it's a stale petition. And under our rules, if a petition hasn't been acted on in a certain period of time, we dismiss it. That's not an explanation. And the court said, because the petition met the requirements of the statute, no written objection was filed. That is, docs didn't file an objection. Uh, Salazar was exempt from the publication requirement. The district court was required to proceed with determining whether there was a good reason to grant the name change. And it does not appear that the district court did so. And even if the court considered the matter and found substantial principal reasons, it should have articulated those in a written order so it could be appealed. There's nothing to appeal here. 
except for the fact that they didn't articulate anything. So this case is sent back to the district court. Do your job, district court. Salazar alleged that the district court, and this is the, the previous judge, Judge uh, Potter, uh, the district court communicated certain concerns about her petition to her, such as her criminal history and the ability of the Nevada Department of Corrections to keep accurate records of inmates. Well, says Chief Justice Hardesty, the statutory provision governing inmate name changes says that if a name change is granted, you have to send a formal notice to the Department of Corrections to update their records. So what's the problem? Do that. But there's no statutory requirement that the Department of Corrections not object in order for a name change. Obviously, they, if they filed an objection, then the court would have to consider what's the reason for their objection. So at any rate, that's one case. And Prisoner name change issues pop up from time to time, and you'll see them covered in the uh, prisoner litigation notes, in law notes. But we have another name change case, this one out of Nebraska, uh, the case of Elliott against Roberts. So uh, the petitioner was seeking a name change in the Douglas County, Nebraska District Court. During the hearing, the court received a telephone call uh, because presumably the fact that a name change was applied for was published in a legal newspaper, and the telephone call was from a lawyer named Justin Roberts, who was representing the Omaha Douglas Federal Credit Union. And uh, Roberts informed the court that the plaintiff had an outstanding debt to the credit union and objected to the name change on the ground that the plaintiff was, quote, wanting to run from his debt by a name change. So the court put off deciding the name change petition. And the plaintiff objected that she was not trying to run from her debt. She was only trying to change the name for her sexuality and gender. So she came up with the money, satisfied the debt, so the credit union wouldn't raise any further objections, and the name change was granted. Okay. So what's this case about? This case is about her suing the lawyer, Roberts, and the credit union for interfering with her name change petition. She said it violated her constitutional rights under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, and it violated her rights under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which is supposed to prohibit coercive ways of getting people to pay their debts. I mean, you could bring an action to try to garnish their wages or something, but threatening them with something coercing them, interfering with their legal rights under the uh, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act may be actionable, right? So you've got two federal causes of action here, 42 U.S.C. 1983 and the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, so you can go to federal court, federal question case. And uh, there's a motion to dismiss. Uh, actually, there wasn't a motion to dismiss. Uh, let me step back a step. This was a pro se case. And pro se cases, before they're served on uh, the defendant, they are uh, screened by uh, the district judge. And uh, the district judges to whom fall the task of screening in most districts are the senior judges. They send them routinely. They send the screening of the pro se petitions to senior judges. So senior judge uh, Richard G. Kopp issued an order to show cause after screening uh, advising the plaintiff that the case would be dismissed as moot, moot because she got her name changed, after all, unless she could persuade the court that a viable claim against the attorney and the credit union remains. And uh, she responded, still without a lawyer, to the order to show cause, 
so the judge granted the defendant's subsequent motion to dismiss the Section 1983 claim on the ground that Section 1983 is a civil rights claim and it only runs against the government, that neither Roberts nor the credit union are government actors. So you can't bring a 1983 claim against them. But he said, you know, taking into account this is a pro se person, not a lawyer, taking account the plain language of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, I believe she has, maybe somewhat ambiguously, but, you know, uh, construing the complaint liberally, I think that she's raising a claim, at least to the extent that we can serve process now on the defendant and let the case go forward. He said, this is not a determination of the merits of the claim or of any potential defenses thereto. But the petitioner here is, Ms. Elliott is going to be allowed to proceed with her claim. Usually the name change cases we, we deal with in the civil litigation note section of law notes, but every now and then there's an appellate decision. Uh, and uh, we end up doing a little article about it. There, there are some district courts in Indiana, district judges who have been very sticky about transgender name changes and the Court of Appeals has consistently overruled them and set them back and said, look, in Indiana, you have a right to whatever name you want, unless there's a good reason to deny it. And the fact that it's changing from a male name to a female name, which is what it usually is in these cases, that's not a good reason. So that's where we are on, on, some, on two name change cases that we report on uh, this November issue of Lawrence. Wow. I mean, kudos to the petitioner for navigating that process alone. It sounds like not only did Omaha Douglas Federal Credit Union accuse her of trying to somehow abscond from her debt, but then misgendered her in the process. Yeah. Well, they figured they weren't misgendering her because the name change hadn't been granted yet. But we know that the name is merely a symbol that the gender identity is part of the person's identity. Once they have identified as a particular gender, that should be how they're addressed. That's the pronouns they're using. And most courts have fallen into line with that. A few, notably the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals have not. That's another issue. Uh, the Supreme Court refused to grant a cert on a complaint that the Fifth Circuit was misgendering a plaintiff. We'll see what happens when we get the misgendering issue up to the Supreme Court someday. Because mm -hmm. the Supreme Court did not misgender Amy Stevens, who was the plaintiff in the funeral home case from the Sixth Circuit that was part of Boston. She was not misgendered by the court. Justice Gorsuch was very careful about that. That's true. Well, thank you for giving us the updates on some interesting name change cases. I know with everything going on in the news the last several months, we haven't really had a chance to kind of check in about refugee or asylum issues, but that doesn't mean they haven't been covered in law notes. So I thought it might be helpful to kind of check in for the sake of our listeners about some updates that you might have there. Okay, this is a very difficult issue. And the, the main focus of what I'm gonna talk about is the Convention Against Torture, which is an international treaty to which the US is a party which basically says someone who is in the U.S. who is subject to removal, either because they were denied asylum, they were denied withholding of, of removal, they uh, have been convicted of serious criminal charges and therefore they're not eligible for asylum or withholding of removal. 
their last resource to stay in the US is the Convention Against Torture. And under the Convention Against Torture, they have to show that it is likely, more likely than not, if they were removed back to their country of citizenship, they will be subjected to torture, which is defined as the intentional infliction of serious harm by the government of that country or by forces that the government was unwilling or unable to control. Okay, so we have a whole bunch of cases this month. One of them is uh, discussed in an article by contributing writer Brian Johnson Zanatellis, a New York School Law School alumnus who's a specialist in immigration law and who uh, writes some of the more notable uh, cases that we send out. Most of them are covered under civil litigation notes, but we had several this month, all denying relief, including the 11th Circuit case that Brian wrote about. Uh, so I decided to accumulate the others into a separate refugee section instead of putting them by circuit in the uh, civil litigation notes. So first, the 11th Circuit case. This is uh, a gay person from Jamaica, Robinson versus Attorney General, gay Jamaican man. He claimed he would face torture if returned to his home country. He was admitted to the U.S. as a permanent resident in 1988. He was placed in removal proceedings in 2021 based on a felony conviction, a 1994 conviction for conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute cocaine, which is considered a serious felony offense. He stated that he feared if he were removed to Jamaica, he'd be persecuted or tortured because he's a gay man and Jamaica is extremely homophobic. He also alleged that his uncle beat him as a child because he believed the petitioner was gay. And he stated that he experienced other forms of homophobia in Jamaica. And he later updated his claim to include an argument he would be persecuted or tortured on account of his family's connection to the Jamaica Labor Party if he were returned. He wrote that gay men faced derision in Jamaica and were beaten and at times killed because of their sexual orientation. He stated that as a youngster, he witnessed Jamaican police officers beating two gay men when they were caught kissing in a Kingston market. And he added that inmates he met while he was incarcerated in the US on the cocaine charge spread word to people in Jamaica that he was gay and that his family in Jamaica had been warned that he could not return because he was gay. So he submitted all this evidence. Uh, he uh, submitted uh, evidence about disputes between the political parties in Jamaica, letters from family members, country condition reports, the State Department issues country condition reports, all of which he claimed supported his uh, contention that it was more likely than not that he would be subjected to serious physical harm. And therefore he should be allowed to stay in the US, US under the Convention Against Torture. At his hearing, the immigration judge issued a decision denying his claim. The judge found him to be credible. The judge found his statements, though, lacked enough specificity. Said the threat, the reference threats were to his family, not to himself. That the conditions evidence was too old to carry sufficient weight. The judge said that a recent change in the Jamaican government cast doubt over most, most of the older country conditions reports, as well as the political aspect of his claim in terms of the support of the Labor Party. Immigration judge concluded that even if the Jamaican community learned of his deportation, there was an insufficient likelihood of torture 
or the government turning a blind eye to warrant Convention Against Torture Relief. He appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals. Board of Immigration Appeals, as is frequently the case, pretty much rubber stamped the immigration judge. They, they found he considered all the evidence in the case. He specifically cited to the country reports and the petitioner's evidence when the court found the government authorities were not refusing to protect people against who were seeking protection. They cited and applied the correct legal standard according to uh, the Board of Immigration Appeals and fully considered the political affiliation claim. So he appealed to the 11th Circuit. And uh, because this is an appeal from the Board of Immigration Appeals from a, an appellate administrative agency, it goes directly to the circuit court. It doesn't go to the district court. And so we had a panel uh, that issued a per curiam decision, none of them signed it. They noted that because the Board of Immigration Appeals expressly adopted the immigration judge's decision, the court reviews both the board's decision and the immigration judge's decision, but they held that they both applied the appropriate standards, that they required petitioner establish that he personally would be subjected to torture in Jamaica by or at the instigation or with the acquiescence of a public official one acting in an official capacity, they said he just did not meet the burden of showing that. So they ordered, uh, they affirmed the Board of Immigration Appeals decision to order this guy to be removed back to Jamaica. And we issued, we, we include three other cases in this issue of law notes under refugee appeals notes, one from the 11th circuit, one from the 9th circuit. Well, the 11th circuit, we already talked about one from the 9th circuit, one from the third circuit and one from the second second circuit, all denying protection under the Convention Against Torture. All in which the plaintiffs showed that they had encountered difficulties in their home country. That and and I mean the the bar under the Convention Against Torture is just set so high. You have to prove that you personally are more likely than not to be tortured by the government, which usually means police officers beating you up and stuff like that. There's even one case here where police officers did beat someone up, but the, the court said, oh, but he didn't have any permanent injuries. You know, it's, it's like, what's with this? Uh, one is from Barbados, another is from Jamaica, but one is from Mexico. Now I can understand the problems with Mexico because there's been a lot of progress on gay rights in Mexico. We now have marriage equality throughout Mexico. We have gay pride parades in Mexico. Uh, the problem is, uh, and this is a recurring theme now, around the world, more and more gay people are getting organized and holding gay pride events and parades and things. And these immigration judges are now saying, well, if they have gay pride parades, uh, how can you say that you're gonna be subjected to persecution if we send you back there? Or if now the government says you can't discriminate, but there's no real enforcement of that. Or if there's a sodomy law that imposes severe criminal penalties, but we're told that it's not enforced. You know, it's, it, it's like the immigration judges are looking for any reason they can to deny relief. That seems to be their default position. And uh, obviously it's up to a petitioner to prove their case, but, the way they're analyzing the facts in these cases, you read these cases and you say, well, if they found the petitioner to be credible with respect to the facts they were stating, how can you reach this conclusion? It sounds pretty terrible to me. And every now and then a case is won. 
And the cases that we see uh, in law notes are the cases that made the courts of appeals. We don't normally review and report on Board of Immigration Appeals decisions, administrative decisions. A lot of cases don't get appealed. And there are a fair number of people who actually win at the administrative level, not necessarily from the Board of Immigration Appeals, but through the intake process where they tell their story to an immigration officer who finds them credible and finds that they've met the standard for asylum if they've applied within the short time period that you can apply for, for asylum after arriving in the US or entitled to withholding of removal if you didn't apply within the time period, but you presented pretty compelling evidence that you would face serious persecution if you were sent back to your home country. But as gay rights advance around the world, the number of countries from which you used to be able to win asylum claims has been reduced. Uh, transgender people whose cases arise in the Ninth Circuit have a better shot at asylum and withholding and convention against torture claims because uh, transgender people still, uh, there's a record of, of violence against transgender people, especially by police officers in Mexico. But it's not a slam dunk. And if you're just, if, it, if it's just a, uh, a routine sexual orientation as opposed to gender identity case from Mexico, your chances of winning are slim. Uh, because uh, the gay rights movement has advanced pretty far in Mexico. Hmm. An interesting double-edged sword. Thank you for presenting yeah. that. A lot of the claims that we see, of course, uh, are from people coming from places like Honduras and Guatemala, places of that sort. The Supreme Court, in fact, one of the few cert grants they've made this term so far since uh, they, they started the term in October, involves a, uh, a lesbian from Guatemala, no, a gay man from Guatemala. And we report on that in this issue of law notes, uh, but it's on a technical point as to how you exhaust administrative remedies before going to the Court of Appeals hmm. uh, and whether the BIA can do fact-finding when in fact that's supposed to be the job of the immigration judge. So it's, it's an interesting case. It, it involves not the substance uh, of whether the person uh, demonstrated, but uh, of uh, whether the person adequately exhausted their administrative remedies by asking the Board of Immigration Appeals to remand the case back to the immigration judge to take further evidence on the issue of Convention Against Torture. But we'll be watching that. And when it's scheduled for argument, we'll alert people about it. We, I think we may have already done this uh, last month, uh, or maybe we hadn't yet, that uh, the, there will be an argument the first Monday in December, December 5th, in the 303 creative versus Hellenist case, which brings back once again to the Supreme Court wedding vendors who don't want to deal with same-sex couples, but this time in a free speech as opposed to freedom of religion uh, context, because of the Supreme Court's decision to grant cert on one question and not the other. Uh, so we'll be uh, reporting on that uh, on the oral argument in the January issue of Law Notes, and then there'll probably be an opinion sometime in the spring. Well, again, our appreciation to you and all of the contributing writers that are keeping everyone up to date on these international issues. I know we're close to out of time, but I just wanted to check in as a final slice of dessert, if you will, to close out our Thanksgiving dinner this month. Do you have any final decisions or cases yes. of note to share? This is, this is of note. This is something that's been going on since uh, 2011, when the Federal District Court in San Francisco held that Prop 8 in California, which amended the California Constitution to ban same-sex marriage, 
was unconstitutional. Uh, Judge Walker, Vaughn Walker, who came out as gay after retiring from the bench, but it was widely known he was gay. He wanted to record the trial. He wanted to make a video recording of the trial. Uh, he wanted to broadcast the trial to other courthouses while it was taking place. The Supreme Court batted that down. The proponents uh, uh, asked the Supreme Court to stop him, but he still made a video recording anyway. He told the parties it was solely for his own use. And he would only he would use it to re review the trial uh, when he's writing his opinion, et cetera. And he agreed that he would have it sealed in the court's archives. It wouldn't be released to the public. Okay. Years pass. Various publications, reporters, researchers want to have access to that video recording. It's been bouncing around in the court. I mean, since he retired, a new judge was appointed to handle continuing matters involving that case. Since then, it's, it's bounced to another judge. Uh, the general rule is that things like that under seal can be unsealed 10 years after the trial. So a uh, district court judge ruled 10 years after the trial. Okay, I haven't heard a good reason why this shouldn't be unsealed. After all, the transcript was published. There have been reenactments of it with actors reading it. You can you'd find things on YouTube. There was a TV special. What's the big deal? And uh, But the, the proponents of Prop 8 appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit uh, said, we don't see any reason to reverse the district court. So they filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court for cert, which was denied on October 11th. So the audio visual recording of the Prop 8 trial is now available. Uh, it's been unsealed. I'm not sure how you get it. I think I've heard someone say that they, they were able to see it on YouTube somehow, uh, that someone has already cross posted it there. But, you know, this trial went on for days and days and days, and most of it's probably very boring, but I'm sure there's so many exciting moments and someone now should put together a compilation of the exciting moments and put that on YouTube. <laughs> And I'm sure someone will sooner or later. The most dramatic moments being when the uh, expert witnesses for the defendants made fools of themselves on the stand, which I think was the main reason the proponents didn't want the, uh, the recording to be released. Wow, it's hard to believe it's been 10 years already. Yeah. Mm. 10 years we've had same-sex marriage. Well, not 10 years. Uh, uh, less than 10 years, we've had same-sex marriage in California, but we've had same-sex marriage in New York since 2011 because of the marriage equality statute passed in New York well before the Obergefell case. Yep, New York was certainly leading the way. Well, thank you so much, Professor Leonard, as always, for joining us for Law Nodes, and thank you to our listeners Wishing everyone a safe and happy beginning of the holiday season. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.